Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Last month, the Department of Energy hosted a virtual summit, convening innovators, environmental organizations, government leaders, and others about the carbon negative shot, an effort launched by the DOE last year to stimulate innovation in carbon removal or CDR pathways that remove and durably store CO2 from the atmosphere at gigaton scale for less than $100 per net metric ton of CO2. I wrote about this target in a recent report I did on barriers to scaling up the carbon removal industry. There's this idea that in order to scale carbon removal, we need to get the cost below this $100 per ton threshold, which makes sense. But why are we anchoring to this number? Is it even realistic? What's included in that cost? Is that the cost to the carbon removal provider? Or is it the price to the end buyer? Does it include subsidies? Does it include the cost of measurement, reporting, and verification? I obviously think that making carbon removal much more economical than it is today is absolutely necessary to successfully scaling it up. But I think we need more precision in how we talk about cost. So I wanted to get into this topic with someone leading a carbon removal company and navigating this uncertain road, the CEO of Heirloom. We talk about the importance of clearing up these definitions and the ecosystem levers that can help drive carbon removal down the cost curve. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to my newsletter at carboncurve.substack.com. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking to Shashank Samala, CEO of Heirloom, a company with a goal of removing carbon dioxide out of the air at gigaton scale by 2035 to help reverse climate change. He grew up in Southeast India, where he saw firsthand the impacts of climate change on some of the world's most vulnerable people. Shashank was previously entrepreneur-in-residence at Carbon 180, a leading climate policy NGO working on atmospheric carbon removal, and a founder at Tempo, which builds mission-critical electronics for surgical robots, satellites, reusable rockets, and more, and raised over $100 million from leading investors. Shashank previously worked at Square and received his Bachelor of Science degree from Cornell University. Shashank, welcome to the show. I'm really excited about this conversation. I want to hear all of your thoughts on getting to down this pathway of $100 per ton CDR. But before we get into all of that, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us more about Heirloom, your process, what makes you all unique, and some exciting developments you have underway. Yeah, happy to get into it. Thanks for having me again. So we are a directory capture company based in San Francisco. We pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, so how this is different than other technologies is that you know, traditionally, when you think about directory capture, you normally think about large fans that blow a bunch of air through a bunch of chemical filters that uh, then capture those CO2 molecules. So ours uh, looks a bit different. We use a process called carbon mineralization. And you know, carbon mineralization basically means we try to leverage very like, super abundant rocks that already capture carbon out of the air. Uh, and basically give them superpowers to capture a lot more carbon much faster. Um, and, and then, you know, specifically we use limestone. Uh, it's this, you know, one of the most abundant minerals on the planet. I think after water, it, it's, it's the most abundant commodity on the planet. So we essentially use limestone and then uh, th that's uh, effectively as, acts as our sponge for the CO2. Uh, traditionally, other engineered materials, chemical filters that uh, other approaches use 
they cost tens of thousands of dollars per ton for, for the sponge that pulls up the carbon. So, so yeah, you know, low cost, as we will talk about a lot more, is all about ensuring your inputs are as cheap as possible. So that's what we've done with limestone. And then the second is, you know, it's incredibly scalable. It's a, it's a stupid simple. Uh, it, it, we essentially turn this from a chemical plant, complicated pipes and, and processes to an industrial automation problem. So once you, if you walk into a, one of our DAX sites, essentially you see a bunch of rocks spread out on trays and these trays are exposed to the air. And as the wind brings in new CO2, these trays suck up carbon from the air. And, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of think about like a, a baking rack. We have a bunch of these trays stacked on top of each other. And we have uh, these racks next to each other. And, and these are our collectors for the CO2. So, you know, our big bet is that by using abundant minerals, we, we are able to get to that 100 bucks a ton number as fast as possible. Yeah, and I really love the combination of leveraging natural processes and then accelerating or, or supercharging them, I think, as you put it, through technology. I think that's a really cool way to go about this challenge. Yeah, I know. We were super excited about it. You know, I think one of the things that we've learned is that uh, if you're going to make uh, your, your path down the cost curve, supply chains need to be incredibly robust. Like you cannot go and go upstream and create a new supply chain for a material that is very exotic that, that only you use or very few people use. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And before we go down this kind of pathway to $100 a ton, I think there's two important definitions that we just need to get clear on. First is like, how are we defining carbon removal? And that's something I've heard you talk about a lot, which I, I love to get into is like, I think we need a widely accepted definition of what counts really as carbon removal. And second, how do we define cost, right? Like we're talking about a hundred dollars a ton. What are we actually talking about? So I guess going into the first one, we can't really talk about carbon removals cost if we're not clear on what exactly we're talking about with regards to a definition of carbon removal. What needs to happen here? Yeah, so I think this is a really important question and we are, we are at an important point in time in the maturity of carbon removal industry where this definition is important because that definition is probably different between you and I, uh, much less you know, different factions of politics or, you know, of where you are in the industry. So, you know, for, for us, carbon removal is taking carbon out of the atmosphere and locking it up over long periods of time, uh, over a thousand years. And, you know, this often gets conflated with carbon offsets um, or carbon capture even more generally which are all about reducing emissions and avoiding emissions. Uh, in our case, it's actually removing carbon out of the atmosphere now and permanently locking it away uh, in a safe manner. So, you know, I, I think there is a baseline standard for what carbon removal is. So that's removal, not avoidance. It needs to be additional. Without this dollar going into funding this carbon removal project, it wouldn't have happened. It needed to be permanent. And the last thing for us, the, for the baseline standard, is that it needs to be safe. It needs to be, it needs to not cause harm. It needs to improve the communities, if you will. So, so that's sort of the baseline standard. And I think beyond that, there is a lot more you can do. You can go above and beyond. And I think this is where creativity and technology and teams can come in. 
after you pass those baseline standards, I think there's multiple different dimensions you can get really good at. Uh, you can ensure that you use as little land as possible. So land efficiency is a problem is an important dimension. Resource efficiency, you know, how much energy are you using? How much water are you using? How much just general resources are you using to get to the one ton of carbon removed? And, and how, what are the positive impacts to the ecosystems, right? Are you, you know, are, are there questions around if animals or marine life are gonna be impacted? Um, and what are the benefits to communities around? Are, are you lifting them? Are you bringing them to, are you bringing them along with you to the future? And what is the scalability? So, you know, there's some solutions that you pro could probably say, there's probably a, a pathway to get to 100, 100 million tons. But I think we need to work on solutions that really have a billion ton potential uh, if you want to get to 100 bucks a ton. So, you know, I think fundamentally all CDR is, are not created equal. Every CDR approach is different, has its pros and cons and trade-offs. And it's very important to create what are the baseline standards that you need to hit, the, the, what are the table stakes and what are the things you can go above and beyond? I really like that idea of just, you know, we have a baseline set of standards and then let, let people compete on all of the other stuff, right? And I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's a good way to get, you know, something that people can widely agree on. Everything else is, is something that it's okay if everyone has a slightly different vision of what that is. And, you know, the market kind of helps decide then where, where resources are allocated based on, on some of that. And the second part of that is just like, how do we define cost, right? Like, is the, when you talk about $100 a ton, is that inclusive of uh, the costs to store the captured CO2 permanently? Is it inclusive of measurement reporting and verification? Is it purely just a technology cost associated with it? Is it the cost to the developer or is it the price to the buyer? Is it inclusive yeah. of subsidies in any way? Like there's all of these kind of questions about cost that just seem very undefined to me. How do you think about it? Absolutely. We have a very, you know, if you look at, look at our cost model or our techno-economic model, there's a very clear way we define cost. So before we get into that though, I want to, you know, hundred bucks a ton is, is sort of a number that we throw around a lot in this industry. And I think it's important to just get an intuition of what hundred bucks a ton is just sort of bring in some analogies a little bit. So, you know, you think about what can you buy for hundred bucks a ton, right? And there's not that many things you can buy for hundred bucks a ton, um, especially manufactured processes. So uh, the closest one is, you know, say ready mix concrete. Concrete is incredibly abundant. It's, it's done across the world. It's one of the fundamental building blocks of the world. It's, it uses abundant minerals like <laughs> limestone and, uh, other gravel, sand, really cheap things. Uh, it's very energy intensive. And, and then the technology maturity is incredibly high. We've been doing this for you know, over a hundred years. So ready mix concrete, something that is so abundant and, and something fairly technically simple, you know, uh, is around a hundred bucks a ton, right? In the ballpark and depending on where locally you are. So basically, for removing carbon molecules out of the air, right? Where, you know, there's only one molecule out of every 2,500 uh, molecules in the air that's actually CO2, it's fairly diffuse. So for a technical problem that is a lot more complex than making concrete, uh, we need to still hit that same dollar number. And just think about that. We need to make director capture carbon removal, high quality carbon removal, the same cost as concrete. 
so we're dealing with something that is incredibly ambitious. So for me, when I first got started, it's like, there's not that many things that many approaches you can filter out pretty quickly by building a quick cost model, um, because there's materials processes that just go over that number. And, you know, I think that's why using simple minerals and simple input materials is so important to get there. So what is included in that cost? So for us, it's five things. It's cost of capture, uh, the hardware, the installation, the construction, the and, and the uh, energy opex to run the plant. Two, cost of storage. You know, what the, fundamentally, carbon removal is nothing if you don't actually permanently store it forever. And number three is cost of MRV included in there. And four. It's, it's netting out the process emissions and embodied carbon. So when we think about cost of carbon removal, we actually think about cost of CO2 per ton net removed. So that you have to ensure that, you know, you look at your life cycle analysis and you come up with you know, 90%, 95%, whatever it is, and you net those out to come up with cost per ton net removed. And it's really important. Because in, in some processes, there is, you know, higher embodied emissions and some there is less. At the end of the day, what matters is uh, cost per 10 that removed. And then for us, you know, that does not include subsidies. That does not include the developer margin. And when you think, when you think about 100 bucks a ton, that's what we think about. Uh, capture, storage, MRV, and netting out process emissions. Right. And on that one around netting out process emissions, that essentially says that, you know, if removing a ton requires 0.1 tons of energy, then you're really removing 1.1 tons of CO2 to get to that one. Is that right? That's exactly right. You have to capture more to be able to get one ton of net removed, uh, which will increase your cost per ton of net removed. So, yeah. So that sounds like a lot that you're including that $100 a ton. And you're talking about trying to get that to a point where your technology is as mature as something that's been around for hundreds of years in, in the development of concrete. Is $100 a ton that everyone's kind of throwing around even a realistic end goal once we start adding in all of these elements or cost drivers? Yeah, great question, right? And then I think if you go back to just study history for, for technology, you know, for, for wind, for solar. And, you know, I, at the beginning of a lot of those technologies, the question was always, hey, like, there, is there potential for, you know, this lithium-ion battery to get to $100 a watt or for solar to get, you know, under a couple cents a kilowatt hour? And I think what's really important is what are the fundamental inputs to the process at scale? What does that look like? And what is the OPEX, what is the, you know, cost floor, if you will, what is the absolute energy thermodynamically you have to put into the process? And, and the last thing is what are the, you know, manufacturing and installation and so forth that goes into it. And you have to be super comprehensive end to end. I do think 95, 97% of the ideas out there, you can filter out pretty quickly by building these models. And, and that's what I did. I personally, I went through this journey, you know, I was not a PhD in any one of these approaches. I basically went through when I was a, you know, EIR. At Carbon 180, I you know I looked at 20 different approaches, and a, a lot of them you can filter out pretty quickly to get there. So I do think 100 bucks a ton, including these costs, is possible. It's not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be one of the most ambitious things we, we've done as a society. But with rapid cost learning, with modular technology, with with economies of scale, with ecosystem supporting a bunch more things, which we'll talk about, we can we can definitely get there. I'm absolutely certain. 
that's good to hear. I, I think as you kind of mentioned, like all of these ecosystem things need to kind of work, work in concert with this goal. And, and so maybe I'll just run through a few of these kind of ecosystem or, you know, non-technological barriers to scale, let's call them, because I think it's important to recognize, you know, you running heirloom, you know, your technology better than anyone else. And there are technology specific advantages that you have that maybe another company doesn't have and vice versa, that's going to get there. And I didn't want to get into all of that. I want to get into some of the things that we're talking about around the supportive infrastructure to get CDR to $100 per time. So I'm going to go through a few questions and I just want to get your view on just what needs to change in order to help drive down the cost of CDR. So how do you think about CO2 storage and transportation infrastructure as a cost driver? What, what does the context in which you work, what needs to happen to drive down that cost? So let's, let's cover those three things. So storage, injection, and transport. So on the case of storage, CO2 storage, there is not enough capacity as of today. Theoretically, there is actually almost infinite storage available in the world, right? Like there was a report that just came out yesterday uh, that showed literally many trillions of CO2 storage potential in the planet. Like when you, once you dig, once we go in the, into the Z dimension underground, there's a lot of space out there. I mean, that's where, you know, the, the problem we have for CO2 in the air is partly because we poked a bunch of holes and a bunch of oil came out and, uh, you know, that came out from the underground and the underground is very massive. So it's obviously the storage capacity is there, but the permitted storage is not there. And so the government really needs to streamline that process for permitting new storage. And it needs to get quick. It needs to be fast. The status quo is not enough. And it's, you know, in the, in the last six months, things have really accelerated by, and, and that pace of acceleration to permit uh, CO2 wells need to continue. Uh, if you go on the EPA website, you know, six months ago, there's only a few. Now it's, it's a lot more that are in the application phase. So they need to get to permitted quickly. So, so that, and so that's sort of the, the permitting side of things. And I, I think that certainty around permitting, around exactly what needs to happen for a, a good well creates certainty for developers and, and creates incentives to drive the, drive the cost down for storage. You know, fundamentally, you know, there's lots of examples that show that you can store CO2 at scale for five to 10 bucks a ton underground, you know, Sleipner plant by Equinor in, in, the, in the North Sea has, has shown that, you know, the oil industry has been putting CO2 down underground for EPOR, enhanced child recovery for, for a long time. And, you know, the, the costs are in, in that range. So I'm not too worried about cost per ton as much as I'm worried about permitting when it comes to storage. Again, things are changing and that needs to continue. So on the transport side, it's challenging specifically on, you know, landowner and community approval and in generally you know, public education and, and awareness campaigns are really important if you want to put new CO2 pipelines in addition to what we already have. So I think that's really an issue of, hey, how can, how can the DOE really push on education? Look, what does DAC mean? And how is that different than carbon capture and storage? How is that different from oil and gas? You know, fundamentally, these are different people, different companies solving a different problem than what oil and gas is. And, and unfortunately, because large pipelines and transport is associated with oil and gas, community approval was not quite there. So, you know, the nice thing about director capture though, is you can be very, very close and really on right on top of the storage well. So, you know, transport will be challenging at some point once you really start scaling, 
but I'm not too worried about that in the short to medium term. Um, and the injection is, you know, the cost of injection should come down uh, a bit, but overall, as I mentioned, uh, we've, done, we've been doing this for a long time. So uh, it's te- te- technologically, it's highly, very much here. And I think you mentioned something earlier on that was important around making sure this is something that doesn't harm communities. How do you factor that in? You know, yes, we need to speed up permitting. Yes, we need to do that in a more streamlined fashion. How do you do that while not looking past the importance of engaging communities and making sure that people feel comfortable about this new technology near to potentially where they live? Yeah, I mean, they have to be balanced super, super well, right? Um, you know, if there, if the delays are happening because of bureaucracies or a lot of the times EPA is just not resourced well right now for uh, a lot of these wells. So, and I think there's so much more we can do just to get the resources out there to speed up and still ensure that there's just people are excited to bring this technology into their communities. So, and I think both of them can happen you know, in, in a fast way and in, in a way that is engaging and in the way that people are excited about. You know, right now, we just need to start resourcing these teams well. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. And it's an exciting challenge to, to figure out. And, and I think just uh, associated to that, just general public sector support for bringing down the cost of scaling up carbon removal. What does that ideally look like to you, you know, what are your views on policies like the DAC Hubs program or the Carbon Removal Leadership Act? What does the ideal kind of public sector support look like? And what are your views on the policies I just mentioned? Yeah, great question. So I think from a public policy perspective, I really see these as a three, three buckets. The first one is deployment funding, essentially accelerating deployments. Uh, and that's what DAC Hubs is, is designed to do. And we really are a big fan of this sort of idea of shared services for directory capture, which I think is a, is a fundamental part of DAC hubs. You know, as a DAC company, I want to be able to go into a site and just plug in and ready to go, right? I want a permitted site that has a pipe to source, store CO2, a, a, a wire that gives me clean power and, and a pipe for water and sewer, right? And, and it's, it's permitted, ready to go. And I think you know, that's all something that the government, that's something they can really do with, with this type of funding and in a way that actually empowers the entire industry. You know, there's another part about MRV there that I think DAC hubs should start doing around as well um, that creates certainty uh, around exactly how we're going to measure and report how much carbon we removed. So that's the first bucket of DAC, uh, DAC hubs. I'm really excited about that. And, and, and it's really you know, the question there is how fast can you deploy that stuff, right? Like any time, any timelines you see from the DOE and the government in general, it's like, oh man, like I wish that was faster. So, you know, so that's that, I'm, what I'm most worried about there is just timeline. Yeah. So the second and, part, yeah, go ahead. Before we get into the second piece on, on, um, on deployment, just so I get some, a few things clear here. So on the DAC hubs, which is, you know, a DOE program that's, that's, you know, designed to get, um, you know, four regional hubs across the U.S., you know, deploying carbon removal looks like DAC could be more than just DAC, a million tons per year on each of those hubs. But the idea that you mentioned shared infrastructure so that, you know, like you said, you can kind of plug in, you know, that's that's something that you could see even something like, you know, systems to improve measurement reporting verifications, MRV, um, as part of that shared infrastructure at those hubs. Is that right? 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the nice thing about directory capture is that MRV is fairly straightforward, right? Like you literally are capturing carbon out of the air and you can put a flow meter in a simple piece of hardware to understand exactly how, how much CO2 you capture. So, and then you can make that hardware standardized and, and replicable across a, a bunch of different DAC technologies at the same DAC hub even. So absolutely. And I think, you know, taking care of the other stuff and, and ensuring that DAC companies can come in and, and just plug in and be ready to go could be a really big accelerant and, and do risk the path to getting to a million tons. I don't know if, you know, four DAC hubs will be possible with the, with the 3.5 billion, but I think maybe a couple will be possible. That's great. Uh, sorry to cut you off there. Um, you're going to get into a, two other kind of policy approaches here. Yeah, the other two are procurement and uh, and and debt financing. So procurement, you know, CDRLA, the Leadership Act for CDR is, is could be huge. It's you know one of the probably the the biggest thing that could that is an enabler for the CDR industry is long term offtake that is incredibly low risk from a market perspective, right? So, you know, for every one venture dollar we raise, we need to raise a thousand dollars of infrastructural and, and project financing. And what, what when you talk, I was talking to a, a project finance vendor yesterday and, you know, and the reason they're even considering looking at DAC now is that, you know, folks like Frontier and, you know, Boston Consulting Group, all these folks are coming in and, and writing corporate offtake. You know, these are, companies that have really good credit history. And when they write a 10 year uptake agreement with a DAC company, that is a low risk from, from a market, market perspective and, and cash flows perspective for a given project. So, and I think, you know, we're, we're probably barely scratching the surface right now with those corporate uptakes. So, you know, the government coming in and actually doing, you know, large procurement deals for long-term uptake for DAC projects could be absolutely massive. Then, and then number three is low cost of capital, right? And this is where the DOE loans program office or some other uh, similar types of things could really could really help because you need billions of dollars to to get to deploy things enough to you know to, to get to hundred bucks a ton across the industry. So. You think that the government kind of getting directly involved in procurement might crowd out? potential private investment, is is that the right way to go about it? Is that the most catalytic role the government can play? I I wrote a piece on this and, you know, people have some some competing thoughts around whether the government should be procuring carbon removal outright. Yeah, we have to be very careful about how the government would go and do it. And I think it's really important to have a clear framework for how different CDR approaches are incentivized and in ensuring that we have a clear framework to price carbon removals efficiently, because we need to make sure, you know, high quality carbon removals are incentivized and, and are priced efficiently. So, you know, I think the government in general is, is traditionally does not have a great reputation for, for doing that. But having said that, this could actually be an incredibly strong accelerant to the industry and and mainly because it, it can actually piggyback and complement corporate commitments right so if the if, if a corporation comes in right now and looks at the cost of cdr it's expensive and they would rather not pay a high dollar per ton and they would rather pay a low, low dollar per ton right so you know as an industry as like everyone together can come to bring down the cost uh, so that it's affordable for those corporations later on because you know uh, like it or not, you know, well, all corporations 
will have to buy a meaningful amount of carbon removals, high quality uh, CDR long term. And for and they hope it to be, you know, in the hundred dollars to a couple hundred dollars per ton range. So, uh, and, uh, you know, government saying, hey, like we are going to be putting a bunch of dollars into bringing that cost and we'll only accelerate corporate commitments to a CDR. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think that um, there's an opportunity for the government to kind of take care of this weird kind of awkward middle when it comes to costs of CDR, right? So you have early stage, you know, purchases that are made by Stripe to get a first of a kind plant off the ground, higher, you know, higher risk. We don't have much price discovery. We're still trying to figure this out. And then at the end of this, like cost curve, you have your like kind of hundred dollar per ton or whatever that lands on where we're at a much higher scale. But it's, I've always kind of wondered, like, so who's going to pick up that middle ground, you know, where we're not talking about a first of a kind plant anymore, but we're not doing this at gigat- you know, multi-gigaton scale at $100 a ton anymore. And I think the government is actually well-suited to kind of come in at that point and pick up some of the more successful projects that come out of things like Frontier or Stripe or some of the other you know, advanced market commitments that are being developed. And, and so they're somewhat de-risked but they're still kind of at that early stage where they need that, I think, extra boost from government on the procurement end to, to grow. Yeah, and that's exactly right, Naeem. If you looked at uh, the history of solar, that's exactly what happened. You know, it took about 40 years for solar to, to do that, and we need to you know, make that happen in about 10 years now. So, I mean, that's exactly what happened, right? Like in the 60s, the, the government actually put a lot of funding into R&D and early procurement. A lot of solar panels went into satellites uh, in, in space. Uh, in, in the 90s, Japan did the same thing. And once the cost came down a little bit more in the 2000s, you have Germany uh, move from a procurement model to a feed-in tariff to basically subsidize and try to give that fuel to ensure that you know more and more private market players came in and increase the scale of manufacturing to further redu- reduce costs. So you know we have a playbook from solar. We can learn. And, and the nice thing about having a playbook is that we can try to figure out ways to accelerate it. So, you know, I can see a combination of, you know, procurement and direct pay tax credits, subsidies of some sort to try and accelerate that awkward middle, you call it. Yeah. And I think one useful resource for folks that are interested in learning more about this is, I guess it's a textbook actually written by Professor Greg Nemet on how solar became cheap, which is kind of the Bible on like, how do we get carbon removal down the cost curve. It's, there's, there's some important you know, key differences between solar and obviously in carbon removal, but I think there's a lot of policy lessons there that, that could be very applicable to how we approach this problem as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great book. I love how he approached that book. I mean, it's not just the, the policy lessons, but also you know, manufacturing and ecosystem lessons that we can learn. And basically, you know, we need to replicate that playbook in CDR and, you know, decarbonizing cement and steel and really across climate tech. Yeah, absolutely. So what are, what are some other factors around getting the cost of CDR down that I didn't think about, you know, that will help us get to that, let's call it $100 per ton, but generally getting the cost down of CDR, what are maybe some other factors I, I haven't mentioned so far? So I think it's important to think about where cost reductions even come from, right? And you know, for, for me, they come in from three categories. One is design and manufacturing learnings. Generally, you know, especially for modular technologies like, like ours, the, the reason you, you build modularly, even though there's other, you know, material trade-offs is that you want to 
just iterate very, very quickly. And that allows your engineers to just learn about the process, make things simple and get down and, and make things elegant and mass manufacturable and so forth. And, and same thing on manufacturing learnings too. Like the more you build, generally you can make things a lot more automated, easier to build and so forth. So that's the first category. The second one is economies of scale. You know, generally if you buy limestone at, at a much larger scale, a steel at a much larger scale, you, you know, you generally get it for cheaper. And the third one is cost of financing, right? So the more mature the technology becomes, the more, the more competition there is to, from financing folks, because this becomes, I tell the team, Hey, we need to make a dock project, like building a home. Right, um, building a home like you get very low interest loans because you fundamentally there's value and, and there's technology risk for building a home is low and and so forth. So, uh, you know, we need to get to a point where you know this becomes like a solar project or whatever where we can the cost of capital is three or four percent. So, those are the three categories. So, what needs to happen? Well, I think, you know, ensuring that modularity uh, and, and coming down the cost curve for for production, for process learnings and so forth continue to happen. So, you know, that, that's really on the technology side of things. But when, when you think about uh, economies of scale and cost of financing, there need, there, we, need to, we need to bring in a lot more infrastructural finance partners into the field. And I think that will happen just naturally as, as there's more DAC projects, more CTR projects that, uh, that, that show promise, that have clear customer commitments, that show that work. So yeah, so th that's where the cost reductions come from. But you know, in terms of ecosystem things that, that enable those reductions, I think one thing I, I mentioned this at the DAX summit and so important is it's a skilled workforce. You know, we, need, we are retooling the entire economy with climate tech. Every part of the economy has to, has to decarbonize. And you know, we, we are like, like when I would look around when we are going to build products right now, it's actually super hard trying to source builders, plumbers, electricians, construction workers, right? It's, we, you're already seeing that in 2022. And if, you know, so we need to figure out how to build that massive scale workforce to, to support this new industry. So the other one I would say is the importance of investment in renewables and interconnects and transmission upgrades. Uh, that's something we have to do anyway to decarbonize the grid. But guess what? DAC also needs renewable energy. and you know, the nice thing about DAC is you can still have behind the meter solar or wind, but, you know, I, I think to be able to, you know, I think DAC could actually play a role in helping stabilize the grid a bit. So interconnects and connecting to the grid is important. So that's something that we still need to invest in. So things that we cannot control, but we hope that continued investments happens in. Yeah. And on, on your earlier point, I mean, there's some awesome jobs out there in yeah. right there capture carbon removal like in scaling up this industry even at this early stage there are some really good jobs to be had in building out this global industry and i think the skilled workforce is there but we need it in the right numbers in order to really scale and that could be a bottleneck if if governments and, and industry don't come together and try to figure that one out um you also mentioned the value of taking a modular approach are we over-indexing on the economies of scale advantage when we should be focusing on modularity? And what I mean is that we, you know, the, the DAC Hubs program, which is awesome, and I think is great that it exists in the world. It's very ambitious, and that's what I love about it. But it seems to be pretty focused on this million ton per year 
And I'm kind of like, shouldn't a DAC hub be optimizing for let's get as many companies plugged into this plug and play shared infrastructure system as possible and help them do as many plants, factories, whatever it takes. And yeah, we'll, we'll get to the, the tonnage we need to get to. But right now, this is about iterations. This is about how many new plants we can build. How can we expand existing plants using modular technology to get those benefits of learning by doing? And then as we get bigger, we then start to realize the benefits of economies of scale. Is that sequential way of thinking about it? Does that sound right to you? Or how do you think about that? I think I mostly agree with you. In general, early on, you want to focus on, and, and honestly, in general, for the life of the company, for us, we always want to build modular technologies to, to, uh, and accelerate R&D Keepa very fast learning rate. I think in terms of deployments, you know, one thing I would add to what you mentioned is there is also quite a bit of learning as you scale. At each scale, there's a bunch of things that you need to fix, you need to improve, you need to go and modify your architecture, you need to, you know, figure out, hey, like I want to use as little concrete as possible. And, and at this scale, this is really becoming a problem. How can I go back and change the design this way? So I think there needs to be a focus on scaling as well. And if anything, modular technology allows you to be flexible and adaptable as you get those learnings from scaling. But in general, though, I agree with you. I think, you know, you could prematurely scale and, and make a bunch of bad decisions. Uh, and again, I, I don't think the approach of, you know, build, let's build massive chemical plants with a minimum size of a half a million tons for, for this to turn on is a good idea, right? Like. Because those things take like, what, five, six, seven years to go from, you know, start to completion. And by the time you commission it, it's a five or six, seven year old design. And I think the focus right now should be on the, the how steep the learning curve should could be, right? And, you know, when we talk about $100 per ton, the fundamental other question should also be at what scale, right? Is it at a billion tons? Is it a hundred million tons? Is it 10 million tons? That answer matters a lot to how fast this industry will, will mature. So, you know, if you build a bunch of massive million ton plants and each costs much more than that, you know, you end up with the learning curve will be very slow. Um, so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. These are, these are tricky things that we think about. The scale one is important in factoring in how we think about cost. And I know it's, it feels arbitrary at times to me, the way we talk about cost. There's still so much actual work that needs to happen, so much learning by doing that needs to happen before we even start really getting a clear picture of what, what um, scaling up carbon removal is going to look like, especially given just the heterogeneity of, of the different types of uh, pathways that are out there, which could be a whole different conversation. But just recognizing we're kind of end, close to the end of our time here, you know, where does Heirloom go from here and how can people get in touch and learn more about what you're doing, get involved with a company? What what would you what would you say to folks who are listening who want to learn more about Heirloom? Uh, we were looking for a couple things. One is obviously talent. The other one is we are always looking to deploy in, in different parts of the United States for now, uh, especially in, in the Gulf Coast and in the, in the Bay Area. So if you are interested in hosting a DAC project, uh, let us know whether you're a renewable energy partner, whether you're uh, a storage partner, whether you have land available for this type of thing, reach out and, and go from there. I highly recommend people reach out to Shashank to learn more. And uh, and yeah, partnerships seem to be critical right now to getting to that early scale. So I wish you the best of luck and thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me today. 
Thanks so much, Naeem. I'm sure we'll do this again. That would be awesome. Thanks.